in the end, it's really just to enhance and add value to places that have exceptional recreational experience. I mean, that really is all it, the, that's the mission of the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation in a nutshell is just to create, you know, really special recreational amenities and places. The places are generally already special and just to grow those communities. It's really all about the communities around them. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Episode 88 features Mitchell Allen. Mitchell is the trail project manager for the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation. Mitchell formerly worked for the Nature Conservancy in Arkansas as well, so we discussed a lot about the relationship between conservation and recreation. We also dove into the topic of monument trails and state parks in Arkansas along with some of the usual topics such as trail maintenance and user experiences. Mitchell does a great job sharing his knowledge on this episode. I'd like to take a moment to thank all the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Fact episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with tagging Trail Fact in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Fact podcast. Please keep up all the sharing, commenting, and tagging of Trail Fact. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Fact through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Now on to the Trail Effect with Mitchell Allen. Here we go. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Mitchell Allen, the project manager for the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation. Mitchell, I believe, is based out of Little Rock, at least from my from what people have told me. He we got Correct. brought together by a, a mutual friend, Jeff Gannon, and Jeff has has been on the podcast as as well, and he's a huge supporter of the podcast. And so we have to thank Jeff for bringing us together. So how's it going today, Mitchell? Good, good. Have a good morning. It's starting to cool off down here in Arkansas, so. Um, slowly I'm, I'm thinking I might actually make it through summer. So there's that summer is pretty much over. Well, from a calendar perspective. Yeah. In Wisconsin, not in Arkansas. <laughs> well, it was 90 here yesterday, so it hasn't quite left really? yet, but I think we got seventies in the horizon soon. Nice. Yeah. I'm excited about fall. It's a, it's one of the best seasons in Arkansas for sure. Yeah. Let's kind of get into your backstory, uh, maybe from an educational perspective and like kind of what led you to being the trail project manager for the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation and the fact that you had a little bit of a work history or maybe a bunch of work history with the Nature Conservancy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, I'll just say all of it, all of this is because I started mountain biking in high school. And so, and, and I grew up riding bikes much like anyone else, um, that I know, you know, just rode bikes and built jumps and jump trash cans and curbs and everything else when you're little. Um, so I started mountain biking, um, in high school, probably 2004 ish. 
And uh, and in the background of every, all the rest of my conservation history, I was continued mountain biking. Um, I always liked being outside doing fishing, hunting, all the different things. And mountain biking was just another way to get outside and, and enjoy myself. So I went to school and got a degree in environmental science at the University of Central Arkansas. Did some ecology work while I was there, landscape ecology, restoration type stuff. And when I got out of college, I, I continued mountain biking through college. Never really got super serious about it. I was really into rock climbing and stuff in college. and and uh, But just continued on mountain biking. I got a job out in Utah for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife when I graduated doing river work. Kind of some big whitewater canyons out there that we were fish shocking. Um, in Dinosaur National Monument, which is Vernal, Utah. And Vernal has a bunch of mountain biking and a strong community around mountain biking. I think that's really where I fell in love with it the way that I am now, because for some reason, man, there's just nothing like riding in the desert. Like to me, the high desert in Colorado, the the Colorado Plateau, I mean, there's no better landscape to ride bikes on. I don't, I don't, I just fell in love with it and, and got a little bit of a better bike. Some, some people hooked me up with a, a full suspension and that obviously made things better and more fun. So I continued riding with folks out there. Um, eventually, after a couple of years, moved back to Arkansas, started a family and, and uh, got a job with the Nature Conservancy here. So that was 2012. And again, just continued mountain biking a little bit here and there. It started, you know, more mountain biking was being developed in, in Arkansas than ever before. Um, and it was kind of a slow process at first, even though everybody feels like Bentonville just like blew up suddenly. Like it really was coming on slow for a long time. And there, were, and there was a lot of little things going on here and there. That job at the Nature Conservancy was a river restoration position. So I was doing a ton of river surveys and geo, uh, fluvial geomorphology, restoration projects and fishery stuff. Um, and I did that. I was at the Nature Conservancy for 10 years, but I, I really was full on river restoration for five or six of those years. And then at the Nature Conservancy, we just started talking about um, recreation in a different way. We started thinking about how we were going to engage more people. You know, the Nature Conservancy is a huge nonprofit, but they're also lesser known than a lot of other conservation nonprofits. They're, they're quiet. They kind of sit in the background a lot of times. They're partner oriented. And so we were doing a lot of work, but not necessarily stuff that people knew us for. And so really, we started talking internally about like, well, how do we engage people with our own brand and our own mission? And uh, that kind of developed into thinking about, well, you know, we really need support from people. We want to build support, build our constituency. And that really means engaging people in our places and showing them our work. And we all kind of thought about our own backstories and really realized maybe, you know, people just having good experiences on our places that was key to people supporting us long-term and in the future and really becoming engaged with conservation. So we set out to start doing recreation. At first, it was probably, you know, it was pretty minimal and we were doing, you know, short little trail segments and it just grew and grew um, into where we had a fully developed strategy around recreation and developing recreation on our places. And, uh, and it was it was a lot more intentional and it became, you know, it got to where I was able to hire someone that was incredible. She was trained well in recreation and had a master's and all the different all the different things that I wasn't trained in in recreation, you know, she knew well. And uh it, you know, hiring her took on um it took TNC's recreation to a new level. And so it just built and built. And again, after 10 years, I was just 
I wasn't really necessarily looking for a new job, but I, I saw this position for the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation and uh, started talking to Suzanne Grobmeyer. She's the director. And, you know, after I wasn't super serious about it at first. And after three or four conversations, I was like, you know what, this really, this really actually fits a lot better than I maybe thought in the beginning and kind of took a leap of faith. And here I am. So now I'm, now I'm uh, with the Arkansas Parks and Recreation about six months now. So still fairly new there and learning a lot. But yeah, it's been, it's been good so far. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit more of the nature conservancy. I have a, I have a couple of questions. One that kind of just popped into my yeah. brain as you were talking, and that is the recreation side of things. Obviously we're here to talk about mountain biking. That's what mainly what we've focused on with this podcast, Yeah. but other forms of recreation, you know, what, what other forms of recreation did you guys kind of dig into? You, you mentioned that you were a rock climber. Is that something that you guys kind of dug into? With the Nature Conservancy as well, because we know that there is good rock climbing in Arkansas. It doesn't get talked about yeah. as much as, at least in the circles that we run in with, with mountain biking and trails. But I've, I do run in a couple in a circle with some rock climbers. I don't do it myself, but I know some. And they've talked about Arkansas as being a great rock climbing state. Yeah, it's an incredible rock climbing destination. Yeah, we so it's, it's funny that Nature Conservancy really, they never were against recreation. And so any places that we had were generally open to the public. There was a few really, really sensitive places, especially like caves and stuff where you have issues with white nose syndrome and, 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 you know, bats. But for the most part, anywhere we owned was open to the public, but it was so hard to find and wasn't well advertised. Like it really was a kind of a backcountry experience just to get to those places. And really the big change was not was not that we were allowing recreation. It was more that the Nature Conservancy started thinking about it more intentionally and purchasing places that were closer to urban areas, closer to cities, places that maybe had slightly less conservation value, but a lot more recreational value. And then developing trails that were intentional, like trails that were optimized for hiking and mountain biking. Some trails that are optimized really just for mountain biking. Um, Other than that, we've always had like, places that you could fish, camp, almost, I would say pretty much 90% of our places are leased for hunting at some certain times of the year, um, just because it's a, it's a good way to connect with local uh, groups around that preserve. Because we're, you know, our office was basically in Little Rock and we had one in Northwest Arkansas. And, uh, but our preserves are the entire state, you know, so, so yeah, it was a way to connect and, and with local people around those places. So there was always that kind of recreation, tons of bird watching. You know, a lot of the people that, that came to TNC places are, are people that are pretty far along in their conservation recreation journey. And what we were trying to do was engage a different group, people that weren't as far along in that recreation journey, make it easier to step away from a city park and come into one of our places, you know, and not get covered with ticks and chiggers and, and step on a snake kind of thing, you know? So it was, it was really when I was at the Nature Conservancy, it was really about shifting the places um, that we traditionally had and who traditionally visited them and trying to engage a whole different group of people, people that weren't necessarily TNC's core group. So, but yeah, it, it really, and now we have, we have rock climbing, we have fishing piers, you know, they have, oh, no tell. I mean, there's camping in a few places, picnicking, there's canoes at one of the, places that you can just walk out to and grab a canoe and go float. So yeah, there's a bunch of interesting stuff going on with them. 
So that also seemed like a little bit as more of an intentional shift of kind of getting hitting that intersection of conservation and recreation and getting those, you know, different user groups to really learn about conservation and appreciate conservation. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like one of those things that we kind of realized that if you shut people out from conservation areas and just like look at it from the outside, it's beautiful. You shouldn't touch it. Like that wasn't a way to engage people and get people to support. They really needed to have, you know, a good experience in one of those places. Just just anything that created a sense of place, created a sense of belonging there. And so, and and the hard thing is we didn't have data around this. It's really, really hard to collect data based on experience. You can do it. It takes a lot of money and effort because it's really just people out questioning people, lots of surveys, different things like that. And then trying to manage who those, you know, a lot of times surveys can be skewed because the people that are showing up already care about that stuff, you know? And so it's really hard to collect data on it. It was really just based on our feelings of like, we can't go wrong if we're engaging people on our places and, and giving them a good experience. Um, and, and automatically, inherently, they were experiencing conservation work if they were on our places because we did conservation work on all of them, you know? So they were experiencing fire managed places. They were experiencing river restoration. They were experiencing, you know, ecological restoration of different sorts. And so that was, it just seemed like kind of a no brainer, even though it was kind of a hard thing to convince everybody we should do, I think in the beginning, or at least do really intentionally, like put true effort into it. It was kind of one of those things. It's really funny. People often think, you know, trails are recreation. It's just like, they'll fix a road up. They'll, they'll make sure bathrooms are clean, but trails are just like, well, that's just a trail. You don't need to do anything to that. And it's like, well, that's not actually true. People aren't coming to a park or a preserve just to use the bathroom. They may need to use it while they're there, but they're coming to see the trails. They're coming to experience the outdoors there. So like, you know, there's, there's just kind of shift about how intentional you're doing things and how much effort you're putting into the actual recreation experience. So yeah, and we're definitely going to get into that later on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tough one. That's a I think it's a big problem with not not a problem, but something to be solved and worked on in our field for sure. Yeah, yeah, I've got I've got some thoughts on that that I'm going to bring up under the maintenance portion of of this conversation. A couple of bullet points down, but yeah. let's dig into on a broad level what the Arkansas Park and Recreation Foundation is, and then we'll go a little bit deeper into what your role there is. Because I think a lot of people are familiar with Arkansas, obviously Bentonville, but they might not be familiar with what the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation is and why it was formed. Yeah. So it's funny. So, you know, I knew about it since the beginning. It was started in 2017. I was already working on trail stuff for the Nature Conservancy and recreational amenities for the Nature Conservancy at that point. And Bentonville was already doing their thing and they were building a lot of stuff up there and it was, you know, getting more and more well known. And I always looked at those things as like, as Bentonville and Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation as doing a different set of the same things that the Nature Conservancy was doing, just a different level somewhat. But I looked at it all as like kind of towards the, the same goal of, for me, it was, you know, in my conservation background was just more people outside, more people enjoying the outdoors, more people kind of spread out across the landscape and not packed into, you know, few parks and few trails. Um, and so I knew about them early on. Like I said, it started in 2017. 
and as that foundation grew and as TNC's kind of recreational um, development happened, I started seeing more and more stuff fall in line between the two. And I really thought all of them, again, were just for the, the greater good of all, of all people and recreationists. And so that made the transition really easy for me to, to step over to the Parks and Recreation Foundation. Now, since being there, I've learned so much more about what we're doing and really what the history was. And, and so really, it started out as an idea of how we can, you know, we have amazing state parks, federal and state agencies. It's really hard for them to spend money sometimes and develop new things. Oftentimes, it's way more expensive than a nonprofit or private entity doing it because there's just a lot of bureaucracy and different things going on that they have to deal with. A lot of costs um, associated with doing stuff within their own staff and budgets. And so this was really started as a way to support the state parks and try to facilitate work within the state parks. And, you know, we're, we're small and nimble. It's, it's a couple employees. It's me and, and Suzanne Grohmeyer, the director, and a board who's really active. But, you know, we're nimble and we can move quickly on things and we can sort of make things happen. Really, our, our side of things is the development side. You know, parks has infrastructure and people to manage the actual trail systems and recreational amenities. And we don't have that, you know, we don't, we don't have staff to be, you know, weed eating trails or, or maintaining them, but we, we can help develop them and pay for them to be built and construct them. And so it really started off with just with state parks. And then slowly that mission has expanded to other spaces, to some city, some city uh, parks that we've worked in. We're kind of working on a big project now that spans a city park. A national forest and also a state park all together in this area out in the Washita National Forest. So that's really cool. And I think it's been, it's really good. It's in a kind of a transition right now. I feel like just since I've even been here to kind of expand that mission, but really again, in the end, it's really just to enhance and add value to places that have exceptional recreational experience. I mean, that really is all it, that that's, the mission of the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation in a nutshell is just to create, you know, really special recreational amenities and places. The places are generally already special and just to grow those communities. It's really all about the communities around them. So I, I can also say, you know, the biggest project we've done so far has been the Arkansas Monument Trails. Um, and those were a project with Arkansas State Parks. It's, it's Hobbs State Park, Devil's Den State Park, Mount Nebo, which tons of people have heard about. And, uh, and Pinnacle Mountain State Park. So that was kind of a, the first biggest project for Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation, probably the most well-known one for sure. Yeah. And with your role as the trail project manager, do you specifically project manage like say a rock solid or a progressive trail design or a yeah. jagged axe or whoever the contractor is to come in to put that in? Is that Part is exactly part of your job title. Yeah, exactly. And and I haven't done a ton of it because we're we're not doing like we don't have projects going on during the summer. I started kind of at the slow season, but the girl that was here before me, um, Amber Brown, she she did exactly that. That's what I'll do. That is the main part of this position is to work with those with the landowners and and the construct um, the contractors 
to build the trails and make sure they're, you know, developed in the way that, that we want, um, with our, with our land managers. When you have a, so. when, and I know you're only in this for six months and you've already said that you're kind of, you're in your slow season. Cause a lot of, a lot of builders, you know, really ramp up in the winter months. I know, you know, rock solid is, is, uh, a builder that I've worked with specifically quite a bit. And I know they like to, you know, they, a lot of them move North in the winter, not all yeah, of them. Yeah. They migrate, you know, but do whatever you, our Kansan networks outside wishes they could do go North or West for the summer. Yeah, exactly. Do you also, when it comes to the project management, are you handed like say the, the contract once it's, you know, once it's already bid out, or are you actually doing boots in the ground planning as well? There's a lot. It's, it's completely, it's completely, uh, as a big group, like interactive between all of us and we go back and forth on all of it. You know, it, it usually starts as an idea with the land manager or advocacy group or someone like that, that wants to do something in a certain place, you know, we catch wind of it or they approach us about it. It seems like something that falls within our mission and we start exploring that. But yeah, it's completely interactive between all the different groups. We have lots of meetings and really try to figure out what everybody wants, what's best for the community, what the community wants, um, you know, what the budget could be, how the, how the fundraising situation looks. And really the plans are born out of that. I think for me, it's always been the most important thing to have a lot of community buy-in. And I know for the director here, she's the same way. I mean, it's really, you want to go and, and be really immersed in their kind of community for a bit to figure out what's needed or what they want and, and, and listen to them, you know, listen to the community tell you. So we have lots of community meetings, you know, to figure out those things. And then out of that, we usually, you will get a design that's iterative as well. It goes back and forth some. And then, you know, after that, there's a contract and, and we build and we manage that as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, it's iterative throughout the whole process. There's a lot of back and forth and, and figuring out and, and changes, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Changes always happen with, you know, when you're in construction, especially yeah. because you don't, you know. What what seemed good in concept doesn't always lay out that great, you know, yeah, in practical sure. application, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's there's definitely those on the ground changes. There's changes to concepts as new things, new ideas arise, and all that. Uh, yeah, so there's it's kind of a moving target all the time, but but in the end, again, it always just comes back to our mission about you know building communities and building really fantastic recreational amenities that people love and can enjoy. So yeah, let's dig into what the monument, what a monument trail is for those that may not be familiar. I'm familiar with what they are, but there's a lot of listeners that may not know what monument trails are. Yeah. So that name kind of came out of the literal definition of what a monument is, you know, a lasting, lasting evidence or reminder of some, an example of someone or something great. And so that, that name was kind of introduced by the trail committee. And then it was further developed by our foundation and the Walton family foundation, the partnership with state parks. Um, and really it was just to build really great trail systems in the state parks of Arkansas. You know, Arkansas state parks hadn't had a facelift, I think in a long time, as far as trails went. And, uh, and they had a few places that had, um, really mountain bike optimized trail. But 
but it was kind of few and far between. And it was really where you had a, a superintendent or assistant superintendent or an advocacy group that was just really gung-ho and they just built it themselves. And a lot of times these trails were old anyways. It was, you know, 15, 20 years old. So trail building practices were just completely different. The thought on it was often really different. So like a lot of times they were crammed in, like they were like, well, you can have this 60 acres or something to build your trail in. And they'd be like, well, we got to get as much as we can. So it's, you know, this, this just crazy packed in trail nine miles. That's like a mouse maze, you know? So I think the biggest difference with this was we were trying to create a really special trail system at these state parks that were already incredible and had really great amenities. They had oftentimes campgrounds, um, lots of other recreational activities like fishing and other hiking trails and stuff like that. And so really that that's, all it was, was this kind of, um, intentional effort to build really great mountain bike trails. And they're, and they're really multi-use trails, but they've always been kind of looked at as mountain bike trails. I think to most of the communities, I think I hike on them all the time with my kids, um, and my dog and, and they're, they're just great trails all around. So, but again, there it's, it's all in state parks. So there's, Mount Nebo, there's Devil's Den State Park, there's Hobbs, and there's um, Pinnacle Mountain State Park that we've done so far. Yeah, and I think Mount Nebo is probably the one that's gotten the most press, it seems like. Although Devil's Devil's Den is up there too. I think so. There's people like BKXC that really loved it. Uh, Devil's Den, they're all they're all great in their own way, man. Devil's Den is incredible. Um, just the landscape there is incredible, and the type of rock there is incredible. It's got this kind of like a lot of the places it has this shaley soil type that holds water super well. Like you can ride it when it's wet and it's just super smooth. We don't get a lot of smooth terrain in Arkansas. So like when you find that shaley stuff, there's not a lot of big chunky rock in it. And it's just, it's so nice to ride. Um, Hobbs, it's its own special place because it has this trail that like goes down into this, it's called the car sloop that goes down by the lakes, the lake. And flows super well it's kind of this got this narrow hand-built feel to it um nebo's probably like you said it gets a lot of press and i think that's because you know it has big expansive views it's kind of this mountaintop and it's a mountaintop that's along the arkansas river valley so it has a lot of relief topographic relief because it's right next to the river and so you have these expansive views from the top and you can just see out forever there's always a nice breeze up there and then pinnacle mountain you know, it gets a ton of use because it's one, it's a beautiful landscape, but it's also 15 minutes from like the biggest metropolitan area in Arkansas. So, you know, the fact that we have, and I live in, in Little Rock, and so that's the closest monument trail to me, but, you know, I'm 15 minutes from there and around not just Pinnacle Mountain, but around Pinnacle Mountain, there's a big lake that's owned by Central Arkansas Water. There's a couple of nature conservancy preserves and ANHC um, natural areas. So there's like 25,000 acres out there. And that connects up to the Washington National Forest. And so then you have, you know, thousands of more acres. And the Washita Trail starts there, which is the National Recreation Trail. Some of it can be biked. And so you can hike from basically 15 minutes from my house all the way to Oklahoma you know, on national forest trail. So it's all, every one of these trail systems have their own, like kind of really cool situation going on. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, 
it's cool that Arkansas has so much. And, and I know everybody knows about Bentonville and Bentonville is actually great for that reason. It brings a lot of people that don't realize how much Arkansas has to offer just outside of even Bentonville. They start exploring a little bit into those arts of the Washita's and like, like, holy cow, there's even more than just what we've seen. Like in Bentonville, there's backcountry. We have, you know, four Emba epics, um, five Emba epics here. So it, yeah, it's just, it's an incredible place to live for outdoor recreation and, and the monument trails just for me personally in my like, you know, conservation background, it's just another way to engage people with conservation land and the outdoors. So let's talk about something that people might not know Arkansas for, especially people that have maybe only been to Bentonville, which is the fact that you guys actually have elevation too. Like what is, what are we talking about at some of these state parks in terms of actual elevation? Yeah. So like, I mean, the highest point, this, this is the deceiving thing. The highest point is uh, 2,753 feet, which is Mount Magazine. And that's in the, that's a Washita Ridge that's just on the south side of the Arkansas River. But what's, what's cool about it is it actually has good topographic relief too. So, I mean, there's trails, especially on some of the epics where you have relief of, you know, 1,400 feet. A lot of places that have 1,000 plus feet you know, just on the actual trails of drop. So yeah, there is, and you know, there's one of the places that uh, I kind of mentioned earlier out and where we're working on forest service land, state park and, and a city together. There's, you know, in the area that we're, we're looking at possible trail, there's, you know, I think 1400 foot is the highest there. So there is a lot of relief. There's not as much in Northwest Arkansas. There's not as much in some of the other places we have trails, but, but there are quite a few trail systems that have a lot of, a lot of relief. So one of the things that I know we had discussed a little while ago, and then I said I'd be bringing back up is trail maintenance. And that's something I've been bringing up more frequently within the podcast because I have a background, my professional background is working for Wisconsin Department of Transportation. And I've worked yeah. both in the new project side of things or project, project development and on the highway maintenance side of things. And I think it's just something that inherently as humans, we kind of look at the shiny new object, but then we, but we don't, we don't really wrap our head around the maintenance aspect of things and the importance of maintenance. And there's also, you know, kind of a, a misnomer that trails are completely sustainable, which, you know, I look at, you could give me a brick building or a, concrete highway and those are you know really hard surfaces but they still they still require a level of maintenance you know yeah. so what you know what kind of stuff have you kind of came, brought into or what kind of wisdom could you impart on the listener in terms of maintenance in that world yeah it's i it's funny the sustainable trails thing is is always got me you know it's it's more of a theoretical sustainability than it is in reality i mean i agree with you there's there's definitely types of trail building that have met, that have made it way easier to maintain and are easier to maintain. I mean, like when I go out to the epics that we have that were hand built many years ago, and it's like, I wouldn't change a thing about them, but there's still maintenance in the sense that in Arkansas, where we get tons of rain and have a long growing season, if you don't weed eat or cut those back every year, they'll be forest in a matter of two summers, you know, they'll be gone completely. And so even in the most sustainable tread types, then you have other types of maintenance. And so, yeah, there's nothing that's completely sustainable. However, 
there's a lot you can do to make it better. So like, again, I was saying my, my background was in conservation. I did a ton of sediment stuff. So, and I did a kind of a study on an ATV trail system. And so what I was doing, I was actually measuring sediment that was coming off these trails and they were classified in different slopes. And so, I mean, it was, you could see the data for measuring, you know, the steeper you are, the more sediments coming off. And like in the Washtals in Arkansas, where I was at, like zero to 5% slope, virtually no erosion, no matter what you did to the trail, you know, five to 10, you got a little bit more. And really once you got past 15%, it was drastic. I mean, there was huge chunks of rock coming out of the trails. Like you couldn't keep it together. You couldn't hold it together. And so I think, you know, I learned a lot through my river restoration and how water works experiences that help with how trails are maintained or even built um, so that they need less maintenance, I think. So, yeah, but I would say I, I agree, man, maintenance wise. And I, and I see it firsthand because my ideal experience is like a backcountry experience, a lot of pedaling, you know, epic thing, you know, the big rides out West, the big rides in Arkansas, like that is my favorite thing to do. And those are probably the trails that see the least amount of use and need the most maintenance as far as like trying to keep them just opened up. You know, the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation, we don't, again, like I said, we don't really have the people to do maintenance. So that's not really our side. Our side is development. However, we still are trying to work with all of our partners to figure out the best way to maintain these things. And I think for me, the biggest thing that I've seen is just that, you know, we don't treat trails i think across the board this is just a long this is a historic feeling that we have is that like trails don't need anything they're just trails if you want to go out go use them and i think i mean i enjoy that simplistic view of trails but at the same time if we want to engage more people and keep people outside and on the trails they need to have a good experience and when a trail's grown up or completely eroded out so bad that they can't walk on it because of the loose rock like it's not going to be a good experience for people and i think I think it's a mindset change we need to have to like say like, okay, we're going to maintain our roads. We're going to maintain our bathrooms. But also the thing people are coming to see at our places that come experience is our trails. And we should probably maintain those at least to some level that we're doing our roads and our bathrooms. And again, I just, I truly do think it's just a little bit of a mindset thing. And, and that takes time. It's, I learned early on in my environmental career is like, you know, you learn things in college that people are not implementing yet in the real world because it's just a slow change as people that have these older views retire and you kind of grow, you get experiences that help you round out, you know, the way you think. And then you have new people coming up under you and they're, again, they're more progressive than you in their conservation experience or environmental. And it's, it's the same with trails as new people kind of come up there's just a better realization. I think that like, Oh, we need maintenance. We, we want these to stay, especially with like berms, man, like people that love berms and jumps, like those things need maintenance. And guess what? If you don't do it, they start to suck. You know, the berms become blown out. The, the jumps have no lip, like, and people that like those things are realizing quick, like, okay, you know, that's the stuff that we need to go out and, and fix. And like the hand cut trail, that was really kind of this minimalist effort to go in is the easiest tread wise, probably, you know, it erodes the least, but it's a different experience. And it's just all based on what you want. I see value in having those fun jump trails and berms the same way I see value in having 
that kind of backcountry experience, but all of them need different things at different times of the year, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I know, you know, there's been kind of a practice of using more rock armoring in terms of like, especially for jumps and the lips of jumps. And I've, and I've had people tell me like, I don't like rock armored lips and in my mind, and I don't argue with them, but in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but do you like doing maintenance? Yeah, I, I agree. I used to, I, I think I used to not like them as much as I do now because I'm like, yeah, but even if it's a little rougher in the beginning, that jump lip, that's so smooth, that's made out of dirt. It's not going to stay that way, you know? But yeah, there's, there's so many things you can do, man. And, and cool ways that people build. I really get so much inspiration, sorry, from like the Pacific Northwest and North shore stuff. I mean, the way they have built within the landscape and really just like tie everything in so well to the landscape and use wood features. I just, I don't know. I'm fascinated by it and I love it. And, uh, I'm a woodworker anyways. So like, I love building things with woods and we have tons of cedar down here that doesn't rot. So we can do those sorts of structures and it just feels, it has a different feeling to it. And I love that. But I think people definitely need just, you know, as, as trail builders get better and have more experiences and, and especially one thing that helps with a lot of this is when trail builders are able to go back and visit stuff they've built and really see like, okay, well, this really didn't work. Um, or this turned out way better than I thought it would. And I think that's key. Um, if they're not doing that because they don't have time or they're just like hammering out linear foot after linear foot, I think they don't learn as much about, you know, from the beginning, what would help those maintenance situations. Oh, for sure. And on the, on the woodworking topic, you know, there's, there's nothing like seeing a really well, well thought out almost piece. Well, it's not almost, it is a piece of art bridge or wood feature, you know, that you can tell is just native and fits into that landscape versus like the pre-manufactured, you know, I guess in trails, you see a lot of fiberglass pre-manufactured bridges and stuff because it's easier to carry that stuff in. Yeah. It's like, I, I, they, they do serve their purpose, but it's way more rad to see something that was, you know, harvested locally, still structurally as structurally stable, still serves the yeah. purpose, but fits into the landscape so much better. Oh man, I'm obsessed with it. I, I mean, like even down to a simple like turnpike that's going over a seep or a spring or something, it's just like when you see a couple of logs laid down and it's filled with nice dirt and it's got drainage underneath, it's just like, how amazing is that and it works so good i mean it works we did a couple at this place that we built with the nature conservancy uh called rattlesnake ridge and we went back through after and it was actually jeff gann who you already talked to that built that but he didn't build any of the features and he really didn't come back it was all in our you know i was learning how to do a lot of that stuff as you know more of a professional and he was learning and so we went back Maybe a year or two later, me and Leah Beck, who was, who was the person I was able to hire at the Nature Conservancy. And we just started, and she has a ton of experience on the Appalachian Trail building these like old school type structures, bog bridges and boardwalks and things like that. And so between my woodworking experience and her just kind of backcountry knowledge, we built some incredible ones that to this day are still just like no issues, man. No maintenance needed. The water's draining. It's never wet. And they're, they're so like, they fit so well in the environment that if you're not looking, I don't even know if you know they're there sometimes, you know, especially on a bike when you're cruising past and it's a, you know, a second that you pass it. But I just love them. I don't know why. There's obviously a time and a place for those things. I mean, sometimes I think we were doing it that way at the Nature Conservancy because we had time, but not a lot of money. 
and fiberglass bridges and those kinds of things were expensive, you know? So that was just kind of the way we did it. But yeah, the people in the Pacific Northwest and the creativity that they come up with, I'm, I'm super impressed by it and always inspired by it. I think every time I go out West anywhere and ride trails, I just come back with like, okay, how are we going to like, where can we use that style or that like thought process here to make something really cool or better? So it's fun to do. Yeah. And that's, and that's super important as someone in your role to see what's going on outside of your own, your own, you know, community and your own kind of your, I guess you could say the radius of where you're doing work to see what other people are doing. Oh yeah. You got to get out of your bubble. And that's, you know, we've been so lucky to work with so many different trail builders in Arkansas and, and with the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation, we're always exploring, you know, new people that we can work with that have a different feel. I mean, you don't want every trail builder has their own kind of aesthetic thing. You know, it really is an art form. And so the more you can work with different people, the more, you know, of a cool, broad experience you can get within your own places. And, you know, Bentonville's helped that tremendously by, you know, having so much going on all the time. They have people wanting to come here and people wanting to experience Arkansas. And so it's a little easier to get trail builders from all around. Like the other day I was talking to um, Adam Buck from up there in Minnesota with Pathfinder. And it's just like, how are we going to get, how are we going to get you down? Like, I want to, I want to see what you got going on. And he's building cool stuff up North, you know, cool little bike playgrounds and, and, uh, cool trails. So, you know, rock solid. They were originally from like Copper Harbor and do a ton of stuff up North. So there's tons McGill. They were out of Colorado and came to Arkansas. There's, it's just cool to be able to have all those different professionals come with all their different experiences and, and build stuff here. Yeah. And there's staff that it's, it's one, it's one thing that's really awesome, especially a company like rock solid that has staff from all over the place. And they have, you know, they have, it's like, they have their own little, it's, it's a company, but they have like their own little crews that are on their own little artists within the company. Yeah. So they can, you know, if you have a gravity system, they'll send, you know, their crew that is focuses on gravity, but if it's more of a shared use, like standard type of trail system, they'll send a totally different crew. And it's, it's cool to see how people specialize in different areas and can really fit yeah. what's needed. Yeah. It's really cool, man. Cause like you'll be thinking about a project and you're just like thinking about whose style really fits this good. Like, like you can tell like when Jagged Axe is like super inspired about something like their trail, like that they are really like good at, you're like, Oh, this is incredible. This was built so well and rock solid the same, like all these guys when they're building, you know, progressive, all the different folks, they're really, really good at like their, their style. And when they're building that, if you can use them for that, like that's what, I think the hardest thing to find is people to build a really good green trail. That's, that's the hardest. And I think it's just because most of these guys that are building are really good riders. And I think that, I mean, I learned that early on, I, like I was talking about Rattlesnake Ridge, like that people often make the joke, like, well, you built a trail system for yourself. And I learned like, man, that, kind of sucks. Like I really kind of did. It's a really technical, rocky, like lots of wood features trail. And although it's great now because we have a lot of other stuff that's easier, it was kind of one of the first more intentional built trails around here that had been done in a long time. And so it was all people had for a while. And although I saw kids out there loving it, you know, smiling ear to ear on a Walmart bike, it's, it definitely was not built for that. And, and that was a realization like, man, we have to, we have to be better about 
you know, and now I have, I have a nine-year-old, I have a, a three-year-old. So it's like, oh, I need green trails. And like, I'll take them out to like, okay, well, how do we feel about this? How easy is this for them to get on these trails and, and ride the strider or ride my daughter's still on a 24 inch bike. So, um, so yeah, but it is, that's the hardest thing is to find green. But other than that, if you want jump trails, there's a person here for that. If you want, you know, a hand-built feeling, uh, that's, that's really, really good. It's probably going to be like a person like rogue trails or something who build these really cool kind of narrow backcountry experiences. There's always someone to do the, you know, a style of trail. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's the topic of green trails has came up quite frequently and how it is tougher to build those trails. And then if you're talking to municipalities, they think that they're the cheapest trails, but really they're probably the most expensive trails because they take the most thought and work to go into them. Yeah. And then where do we have to, to build trails? Typically it's places that couldn't be or weren't developed, which <laughs> yeah. aren't your flattest really places. Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, I'll, I, one of the places right by my house, River Mountain, you know, its intention was to have you know, some green trail there, but it's, you know, the, the hill slopes are probably, oh, I don't know, man, 50 to 60% in a lot of places. And to build green on that, I mean, they did okay in a few places, but it's just really hard. It washes, it's a sandy soil that leaves like when the sand washes away, it leaves behind rock. So over time, it just becomes rockier and rougher. And, and so there's places like that, that are just, it is hard. Luckily there, it's right on the river and right across on the greenway, there's this kind of flat sandy island that they were able to build like a really, really green, almost white you know, kids trail. And that thing's great. It's actually hard surface too. It's chip and seal. So it's good all the time. Um, it flows well through the woods, almost completely flat. So we were able to do that there, but yeah, it's, it, I, I agree. That's a really good point is like a lot of the places, a lot of the parks and stuff were land that wasn't developable. And so it, it is tough to build green trail. I think it, the other thing about green trail is like, I think a lot of people don't have experience truly like with what steep is for kids, you know, and they're not using clonometers. And like, we've always laid out our stuff with clonometers with, and like, I know green trail can go up to like, it used to be 10% on the Emba max. And now I think they've even got it up to 15, but like 15 max for kids, not happening, man. They're walking. Not, not for like small kids anyways, maybe like when they start getting strong and some stamina and they're, you know, a lower teens, like they can probably make it up that stuff. But we always tried to average, like I know when we were laying out stuff for the nature conservancy, if we wanted it green, like we're trying to, we're trying to average in the 3% range. And that makes it tough for people because you're often confined where you can go and you can't climb forever to get that 3% slope up, you know? So that's probably the, the biggest difficulties in that. And now you know, 5%, five to seven, what people don't realize is like, if you're going downhill at like a five to 7% average, that's actually still really fast. And oh, yeah. for a majority, for a majority of your, of your riders, you know, there's a top tier group that can blast and not touch the brakes on as steep as you want to give it to them. But that's not the majority of people riding, you know, the majority of people are really comfortable in that five to seven and they're not on their brakes all the time. They're not, you know, dragging their brakes down the whole trail. It takes some thought and it takes some experience. And I think a lot of young trail builders just, I mean, 
it, it definitely helped me learn just having kids and realizing like, oh my gosh, I have to have something for them to ride. Like, where do we go? Where are the trails that were built that were inherently on flatter ground just so we can ride it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I got a six-year-old and a nine-year-old as well. And so it's, I, I definitely understand that. And it's like, if you get them on anything more than 5%, they're probably not smiling. Yeah. For any, just for any period of time that is. That's right. If it's a long climb, I mean, even that, even 5% starts getting tough. And, and, you know, with e-bikes now and little toe straps, you can, you can get by with a lot of different things. My daughter, she was lucky enough to go to Crested Butte this summer and, and we got her on some uh, lift access, which was her first time. And that was a whole different thing because now instead of being, you know, uh, kind of distraught about the huge climb, now she's like scared of never like having to use her brakes the whole time and never getting a flat place to kind of slow down. So, but yeah, it's, it's a whole different experience once you have kids and, and talk to people that are older school that have, you know, different experiences with trail and what they want. So trying to, I think that is the toughest thing for, I know for like the Arkansas Parks and Recreation Foundation, who their big thing is development. I mean, that is the hardest part of what we do is like making sure we're trying to get a good mix of everything, be really inclusive to all the different users, but also build something that's just really great all around. And then, you know, we hand it off to state parks or whoever, and then they have the tough part of maintenance. So, you know, it takes hard work on all ends and it's, it's definitely not as easy. You know, it's, it's, I wish it was as simple as just like, oh, it's just trail. It's, you just go build it and it's, it's easy, but you know. It's, it's not always that simple. So one of the things I ask people, and sometimes this doesn't land well with them. Sometimes it does. Hopefully it does with you. I call it a famous failure, but it doesn't actually have to be famous with anyone but you. But, and it really just is there to like show that, you know, there's adversity in learning and we have to, you know, and, and so what's an experience or a learning experience that really stuck out to you is something you, you took away from it. Well, hate to kind of kill your question, but I kind of already talked about it. Honestly, my biggest failure was building a trail system for myself and not for other people. And I don't know that it was an ego thing as much as I just thought it was really cool. And I think that's what a lot of trail builders do is they're like trying to build what they think is cool. And I was doing that same thing, but I do think it was a failure in the sense that when you're doing that, you're not thinking about what the community needs and what other people need and what's going to be the greatest benefit for the most people, you know, again, I I say it worked out because other trails were built, other more moderate things were built. But whenever I built that, I think that was, I think that was a disservice to a lot of people to build something that kind of gnarly and, and rocky and technical. Other than that, you know, I don't know. I think, I think I learned quickly whenever, and it wasn't necessarily, I don't know if I'd call it a failure necessarily, but whenever I was able to hire Leah at the Nature Conservancy, I just learned how much I didn't know about the real technicality of like laying out trails or or how to lay out an entire preserve that needs a lot of different amenities and a lot of thought. And she brought that experience from, you know, a really like traditional learning, you know, masters in recreation of like, well, these are all the things you got to think about. And you're just thinking about mountain bikes and we should think about how this is going to affect hikers or other people that are having these experiences out in these places. You know, I used to think that, oh, well, it's easy. Just everything should be multi-use, two-way, 
all that stuff. But after, you know, a lot of field time with her and just tons of, I mean, she was, she was one of the best people to bounce stuff off of both philosophically and in reality, because we were out there doing the work, but like how things affected different people. And like one way trails started making more sense to me, you know, maybe two way, two way trails for hikers, but only one way for mountain bikers kind of things, you know, how to separate different groups and that there's actually value in separating them sometimes. Now, sometimes it's not, sometimes you want everybody using the same things because there's just, you're not over that capacity. She talked a lot about like social capacity of our different places and trails and overuse, but some places don't have that problem. So you can, you can put everybody on the same trails and there's no real conflicts. And really it's just better for the trail. You don't, you know, some part of maintenance is just use. Right. And so I learned a lot about that, but I really learned whenever I hired her, just how much, how much I didn't know just through experience. Like uh, there was a lot to be learned from, from people that had come through a, a degree program in recreation and the things they're thinking about. And just also she had completely different experiences. She was like a big time backpacker, done PCT and, and a lot of other big trails and worked on the Appalachian trail. So I think it's just, it's learning again. It wasn't necessarily a failure as much as it was like learning. You have to get out of your own bubble and really think about what everyone else needs and wants to. So. Yeah. And you had to bring up a topic that I didn't have listed, but it's something that it, it, people who know me personally is like a really, a real hot button with me. Uh Oh, soapbox. Here we go. Here we go. What have you learned with directional trails? Because I've been a huge proponent of directional trails, not everywhere because they don't make sense everywhere. And sometimes you can't actually do it everywhere because maybe a trail is a link between two systems. And so it has to be bi-directional. But what did you, what did you pick up on when you got to do directional trail? And I'm going to add in because you said it, and I've always thought it is bi-directional for hikers, but directional for mountain bikers. Yeah. So you know, I, I wasn't thinking about it much, but when you start developing these things and you're, and you're having meetings with a lot of diverse groups of people in the community, you hear about these things like, well, this is what they're worried about. And at first I thought, well, they're worried about it. I don't think it's an issue, but to, you know, appease a group or help them feel more comfortable, we'll do it this way and we'll try this. And over time, I think I've, it, those, those styles of trail have grown on me. So the first one we did was obviously to me, I think directional trails work a lot better. One with specific types of trail, obviously if it's like downhill oriented trail, like gravity flow or something, of course, it just makes sense to be one way. You don't want people coming up that, but two in more urban areas where you're probably going to get bigger crowds. I think that those are the two places that it really makes the most sense to me. And I'm sure there's other, I mean, this is the thing about trail building. There's so many people with so many good ideas and you could talk to a hundred trail builders and then I'll tell you kind of different opinions and probably all of them are valid. Right. Um, in, in some instance. So it's, to me, all that says is it's so determined, determinate, like on the place that you're building those trails. So the one example I have that, that I personally did was a climbing trail that was the climbing trail was really the best hiking route to the top of this ridge, Rattlesnake Ridge, which is a pretty spectacular viewpoint up on this kind of knife edge ridge in the Washita's. It's a really kind of unique experience. And it looks out over Pinnacle Mountain and that Lake Maumelle area that I was telling you about earlier. And 
just really great views. There's rock climbing up there, kind of this historic rock climbing area from the 80s that has both the droughts. And so the main thoroughfare people would get up and down was the same climbing trail that we had for mountain bikes. We honestly built it as a climbing trail. So even if you tried to come down, it wasn't that fun. Like it was just things that you don't realize are tight when you're going up the trail because you're climbing and going slow are kind of really tight and narrow coming down. And like, it doesn't make as much sense, but also when you have that many people hiking it, like just make the mountain bikers go up, make it a counterclockwise directional loop and, uh, and build it fun, kind of more downhill on the other side where they're going to come down counterclockwise. And it just made the most sense. And so I think honestly, the biggest thing I learned from that is how hard it is to do signage for that type of trail to that one. You're not just like crowding everything with a bunch of signs that nobody's going to read, but something that's intuitive for people to understand easily and not get lost. And, uh, really it's just that it's just make it easy for them to understand. And that's not always easy. And maybe it's just because my background isn't like marketing and communications. Like my background is something completely different, like being in the woods, looking at plants and animals and, and, uh, trees and stuff. But, uh, yeah, it takes some really intentional signage and wording to, to figure out how exactly you're going to tell people like, yes, hikers can go up and down this, but mountain bikes cannot, they can only go one way. Um, that's probably honestly, that's probably actually another kind of thing that I would say it is, was kind of a failure is just signage and how to make it intuitive for people and people not get lost. That was the biggest complaint I had always at Rattlesnake Ridge was, you know, I'm lost. The signs don't make sense. And I've realized now through different iterations, well, it's just actually not that easy because different people, some people can get lost if you were leading them with a leash, like they'll, they'll, where are we? Where do we go? I don't know. And then some people don't even care. Like that is the experience. They're just like, well, I'm just going to go uphill. And then when I get done, I'm going to go back downhill because I know the parking lot's down there. So that's probably the hardest thing, the hardest thing to do. And I do think it was kind of a, a failure on the map signs that we did um, as a failure on the directional signs. We had these old road systems there that we opened up the preserve before we ever had intentional trails built. So everybody got used to using these roads. Then we tried to kind of close them off and just use the trails. Everybody was confused about that. They'd hit a road and be like, oh, well, I guess I'm supposed to walk up this road now. So there was all kinds of things, but just how to get people around your preserve um, or trail system and make it make sense. And that was where uh, Leah definitely helped a lot. She just had a lot more experience with like, how those things worked and how to, how to help people understand. So, so yeah, that's what I learned, you know, two way trail or one way trail, however you want to do it. Like you have to make a, a big effort in how you tell people that story of like, which way it is. I do think it helps. I mean, I, I love the fact that hikers don't have mountain bikes coming down that trail and they can just kind of do their own thing. Um, there's no conflicts with it. And then we have, we have lots of trails in Arkansas that are directional downhill trails and have signs at the bottom saying like, don't hike up this. Like there's going to be bikes coming down fast. So, you know, it's, it's been around long enough here that it doesn't even seem, doesn't even seem weird. It's just kind of the norm. Like, and you think about it when you're developing a trail system, like, well, how should we make this? Should we make it directional? Should we not? Like what makes sense to have as a two-way loop kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. And did, did you ever specifically talk to any hikers and cause I would 
I would assume they would show, show some appreciation. That's a tough one to get out. Show yeah. some appreciation towards knowing what direction mountain bikers are going to be coming from and that they're not going to be coming from both ways. Again, I, yes, we talked to some, but until you even explain it to them, even if they've read the signs, a lot of times they didn't even understand that's what was going on. And the worst thing you can do, I mean, it's great when you're out there on those places, the more interaction you get with people, the better you feel about a place like being out there at Rattlesnake Ridge working and talking to all the people that loved it. That's what really gave you like the best feeling. The worst feeling you can do is go on like Google reviews and read all the angry people about how mountain bikes are going too fast out there and all these different things. <laughs> and I did that a few times and you shouldn't do it because it just makes you feel bad. And it's a small percentage of people, you know, but yeah, they'll tell you all the terrible things, all the things you did wrong for sure on a trail system. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you got to love the internet, right? <laughs> yeah. It's easy to, and you got to realize I mean, people don't really like get super pumped and go leave reviews. I try to do it now because I've realized like, most of the people that are leaving reviews like got angry about something and went and did it. So I try if I'm really pumped on something to go do it. But yeah, most of the people that are on the internet uh, to leave a review are not super pumped about something. So, but yeah, we, again, it was, it's funny that you talk to people on the trail and they don't even realize exactly what that means always. Um, that mountain bikes can only go up or why we did it. They'd be like, Oh, well you also get a lot of like hikers there thinking like, because it says, I think originally it said mountain bikes uphill only. And I don't know if we had hikers both ways or something on there, but it, it was different or something. But a lot of people just thought that meant, oh, well, this isn't a hiking trail. This is the mountain bike trail. And I think that's a, that seems like a historic, like people just have it separated in their heads. Like, well, that's not a mountain biking trail. That's a hiking trail. Or this is a hiking trail, not a mountain biking trail. And that's something that multi-use trails, it's hard again to like, to show people like, no, this is actually good for both. It's actually way better. Like, yeah, you can walk up that road, but it's, you know, a fall line eroded piece of garbage. And this trail is laid out nicely. It's a super nice experience. It's in the woods better. I know for me personally, I just always try as much as possible to let people, hikers, dog walkers, equestrian, like know that I'm there well before I scare them. And also just like, if I can get off my bike and let them pass, or like pull off the trail just enough to let them pass, like, and just try to be as courteous as possible. Cause I don't want, I think most mountain bikers are that way too. I mean, most of the people I, in my circle are that way, but you definitely have some bad apples that have like bombed downhill past someone and like made them mad or scared them or something, you know? Yeah. The worst one though, is whenever you're trying to let them know you're there and they're wearing earbuds or something and you can't get their attention. That is, that is the worst. Cause you're, I mean, I've had that happen so many times where you're like trying to get their attention and you almost have to yell and then you startle them and then yeah. you feel bad. And for then startling. you startle them still. And you're like, I was trying not to startle you, but at least they're, at least they're wearing earbuds and not, um, blasting and not regular speaker, speakers. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. I, uh, I commend that. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get into a question that I also ask everybody, which is trail communities. What in your opinion makes a great trail community? Like, what do you look for both or something you want to maybe implement into your community? Or it sounds like you've obviously traveled and lived in other places. Like, what have you taken as like, I mean, it was a great experience in that community. Obviously great trails is, is the start, but then the people is really the, the biggest thing for me, man. I think, you know, I've been a, a kayaker, a rock climber, a mountain biker for many, many years. And 
it's easy to show up in some places and just feel like you're a complete outsider and that you can't really fit in. There's this kind of like, you know, bro culture around it. And I think the people being inclusive and finding those communities, I think having a lot of like Northwest Arkansas has been doing really good at it because their community is so big now, but lots of like beginner rides and women groups. And so that stuff to me is so important, man. I mean, it's great to have cool restaurants. I love that, especially for when you want visitors, but like somewhere I want to live, you know, it's trail that's close. It's good trail. It's experiences um, that are in the outdoors, um, you know, good connection. And then it's, and then it's kind of the programmatic side of like having, having group rides and having good trail days and lots of community around that. And just, again, just being inclusive, like feeling like anybody could walk up and have a conversation with you and, and be welcoming. You know, it's fairly good in the South in general, as far as being welcoming. I don't know if we're as nice as like the Midwest folks, but there's a, it's different, but people are generally really nice and welcoming. And I think uh, mountain bikers need to just make sure just along the same lines with kayakers and rock climbers that they are not, you know, kind of excluding people or kind of making it about themselves and making it about the community. That to me is, is what makes it so good because then you, uh, you have the next generation coming up too, and you're building, you're not just like, it's not just you and your, your friends that are the mountain bikers. And that creates more drive for a city or municipality of any sort of County state parks to build more stuff like that because your community is more, you know, prominent, you have more advocacy for it. So, um, the other biggest thing for me is just when I talk about inclusivity is stuff for kids. I've already said, said it a bunch. And I know that's personal to me because I have kids and not everybody does, but I think you want to have places that they can go ride and enjoy bikes. We, we have some good, really, really beginner stuff here in Little Rock. I think what we need now is kind of that transition from like the really, really beginner to like kind of trails that are in the woods, but are easier trails in the woods. Um, we have a few of them, but we could use more for sure. Yeah. So they can get that woods experience without having to have that super high level skill set, and they can build That's up right. to it. That's right. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Do you have any yeah, closing comments or anything you'd like to talk about before we wrap this one up? Man, I just, I, you know, I appreciate what, what you're doing, talking to all the different folks uh, around the country and, and getting feedback on what, you know, where to go with, with mountain biking and, and trails. I think it's great. Anything else as far as that goes, I'd just say, you know, if people come to, to Arkansas, you know, I've, I've heard you talk a lot about Bentonville and, and come to Bentonville, but also, also experience the other parts of Arkansas. The state parks, like I said, the monument trails are, are fantastic. We have some Imba epics that are just incredible. The Womble Trail, I mean, is my favorite trail in the entire state. And it's funny to me because people are, I think people are driving out west to go on these big epic rides and they don't even realize that there's one in their backyard. I will say, however, um, if you're coming to visit Arkansas, don't come in the summer. If you live, I mean, if you live south of us or in the southeast somewhere, come in the summer, you're fine because you're used to it. But if you're from a mountain town in Colorado, you know, fall, spring, wintertime, 
basically anytime from like October to April is fantastic. And then, you know, May, June, July, August, it gets, there's, there's periods of time that are good, but it's definitely, uh, if you're not used to the humidity and the bugs, it's, it's tough. So, um, but man, fall and spring and in, in Arkansas, there's nowhere I'd rather be. It's incredible. So, but yeah, there's, there's a, you know, the website for Arkansas parks and recreation foundation, um, dot org. It's, it's easy to find. It's got maps and stuff of, uh, well, it's got links to the monument trails and on the state park sites and maps and stuff like that. So, but yeah, watch some, watch some YouTube videos on our monument trails and get psyched to come, come ride them because they're fun. And I'm glad you brought up the Womble Trail because you're not the first, per- you're not the, this is the first time it's been brought up in the podcast, but I have a friend here where I live that was telling me, he's like, man, like next time we go down to Arkansas, we got to go do the Womble Trail. It's Gosh, it's incredible. I'll have, to, I'll have to send you a picture that I took in the spring of just like, it's the most narrow. I mean, the tread is probably six inch wide in places and just in the most beautiful woods. It's, it's laid out really well. It has these really, really long kind of flowy downhill sections, tons of pretty creeks. That one's tough. And I tell people this, they're like, okay, so I should go in the winter. I'm like, well, it's actually a tougher one because the trail is so narrow. Like you have to get it when it starts cooling off, but before the leaves fall off or then wait a while, because once the leaves fall, the leaves are so deep out there that it takes a while for the tread to kind of get back packed in. And so it's either like a early fall one before the big dump of leaves comes off. So like, you know, late October, early November or, or wait till like springtime. And then it's just the wildflowers are incredible out there. So but that one, there's Buffalo Headwaters. That's an incredible. It's up on the upper uh, upper Buffalo Wilderness area, kind of right next to the Wilderness area on the Buffalo River, which is a national river in Arkansas. And then the Lake Washtenaw Vista Trail and the Washtenaw Trail. The Washtenaw Trail is like a that's probably the most epic one we have because it's a hiking trail and it's rocky and rugged and a lot of miles that you can ride. So all the way to Oklahoma. All the way. Yeah. You can't bike it the whole way to Oklahoma, but you can, you can, uh, bike it from just like 30 or 40 miles west of town all the way to Oklahoma. So yeah, it's cool. So yeah, man, when you're ready to come ride the Womble, hit me up. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mitchell, it's been a pleasure to have you on here and to get your perspective, both from your experiences out West and your experiences in Arkansas and, and how you, you know, how you're learning and how you're growing the sport or the activity of mountain biking down there. So I really appreciate this time. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's, it's fun, fun talking about it. And I just feel lucky that I get to do it honestly. So, well, thank you very much. I know it's a Friday, so you have a good weekend and just enjoy your time, man. Hopefully it cools off. Yeah, it's, it's getting there. We're getting close. Uh, you have a good weekend too. And maybe I'll see you around sometime on a trail somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Links for the various topics discussed on the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Fact Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Fact Podcast. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Fact through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, 
you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.